Warner strikes me as a, a constant on this scene. Like you kind of see him about, he knows everyone, he's been there from very early on, he played at the Box Hotel de Bretts, he was a global underground tour DJ when they'd come over here. Most importantly for me, he loves Danny Tanaglia. Yeah, he's. I think he's our own version of like Terry Farley. He's been there since right. the start of the scene. Uh, always supportive, always a pleasure to deal with. Uh, and puts his money where his mouth is. He's always behind the scenes trying to deal with the bigger issues that a lot of us don't see a lot of the time or, or don't get the chance to actually put our voice forward. Mm, yeah, I mean, he, he, he's certainly a, a lobbyist and, and a spokesperson, really. Um, and I also, I want to, you know, I, I want to find out from him how he's getting on with the authorities at the moment. You know, how does it compare with skirmishes in the past? Are we really going at the dogs? What's happening with licensing hours? But I also want to tap him for some data because most conversations that you have like this are based on assertion with a few facts but very rarely concrete data about how many things have closed or when they're closing etc but he'll know he's just that kind of guy like he'll definitely have figures um and and it's all very well us talking about big problems on the scene but you know if we don't have the data to back it up that reduces the weight of the argument so uh I think it's good to have someone like Rob on on here who who has a you know uh, a real knowledge of what's going on behind the scenes. Yeah, I agree. That's the whole point. Yeah, yeah, you know, and and yes, we may end up complaining about licensing hours. I'm sure he will as well, and 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 all sorts of other things. Um, but yeah, it's important that we get factual. With, uh, with with some of these arguments, and uh, I think this is going to be a good factual mm, one. I don't need facts; I just make <laughs> stuff up. Uh, well, good afternoon. We're back here again, Saturday afternoon. So we have uh, this man called Rob Warner. We've picked up off the street. Uh, we've got Mikey here again, uh, and I'll be having a beer because it's Saturday afternoon. Well, Mike, it is Saturday, nah. so I've noticed you don't drink. You solid British stiff upper lip uh, professional in this I, I'd, I'd take that I don't think British is an issue here really just pro- are you French? professional half Italian mate as it goes uh, um, but I like to do my journalism straight in fact I like to do my DJing straight even believe it or not but that's pretty irrelevant right you now. Might try having a drink; it might make you a bit better. Oh, really, Owen? Really? Well, let's just see what happens in the edit, take which, which I also do straight. Uh, take take and, the edge off. And <laughs> Rob, I've never seen you. You're not a big drinker, not a big partier. What's the story behind? You just try to keep keep it level. I'm a very big partier. I'm just not a big drinker. Big, yeah. yeah, yeah, and I'm, you know, I'm, when we say partier, that means partaking in narcotics, which is. Uh, I think that's Russian for drugs. So <laughs> okay, well, in, in that case, yeah, I'm I'm never been a partier. No. Yeah, never even tried it in that in that case. Yeah. So. so you came at this from being a collector, really. Um, you've been DJing a very very long time. You were not seduced by the party scene as such, but you were more seduced by the records. Is that fair? Yeah, that, that's fair. Um, I had an older brother who was um, who worked in bars and nightclubs, and so I'd hear his music, you know, 
like everyone with an older brother in the 80s in New Zealand. It'd be Def Leppard and Ice House and White Snake, and and then at some point it changed to Ten City and KLF. Um, and that was the influence that got me into it. And then uh, I I actually remember when the idea of DJing mesmerised me was I went to an afterball at DTM's on K Road, which is now Studio, which used to be called Don't Tell Mamas. Great name for a That's nightclub. A way fucking better name. <clears throat> um, way better name. <laughs> yeah, and um. And I heard a piece of music I knew, and I couldn't remember what it, I can't remember what it was, but it sort of didn't stop. The next song just started, and I was like, "How do they make this music? It, it never stops. There's no gaps." And you know, sort of went and looked at what they were doing, and over a period of time, worked out that there was a technique for blending records, and then the sort of the interest in the tech kind of clicked. Before I was DJ, well, even when I started DJing, it was like. The guys that blew me away was the guys. I'm like, how are you doing that? I don't know how you're doing that. Yeah. Like, uh, I can kind of figure everything out now that I'm a fucking veteran, if you will. But um, back in the day, yeah, anyone that could that could do something, I was like, what? How are you doing that? Yeah, and the sense of mystery still still remains for me when I see people who are really really good at their craft. And you know, and and you'll know this too as a long time DJ um, that you can watch someone DJing for one or two mixes and you can assess pretty quickly whether they're really on top of their game or whether they're just proficient. Yeah. 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 I certainly, I, I think even more so in the days of vinyl where you could see how dexterous some of them were. And they carry that forward now on, on CDJs. You can tell that you can tell how some people started on vinyl that they were proper turntablists. Even if what they're operating now is, is completely different. They've just got that feel for yeah. it. And and also the um the control of the mixer too. The um people who came through vinyl seem to be less aggressive and skittish with the way they use it. They're sort of more calm and there seems like more of a plan or a or a routine, how to um, segue between records. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I agree. So you become obsessed with, with with the tech and also how to blend music. When did you start playing out publicly? Um, I I was buying records from a shop called Quaff, um, not Quaff, um, Baseline Records, which is where Karen Walker is on O'Connell Street, and that was run by Sample G and Sam Hill. And I was buying records from there, and then they had a DJ kind of school course you could go on, which was run by John Davis. And he happened to also DJ at Custom House, where my brother worked on the bar. And um, I did that with a bunch of friends, most of whom are still DJs. And um, I think I the first time I played out here was at the Custom House, and I did one mix. I was just there one night, and John was like, come on, Rob, you're up, have a mix. And I mixed a tune, and he was trying to impress his other DJ mates that he'd taught someone, some young, young honky, and um, it um, and I mixed it fine. I don't know how. <laughs> I bet you'd have been and nervous. I, and I was like, yes, <laughs> I love to tell the tale. So, and I remember what records it was too. It was um, a record called Two House Go Techno, and I mixed into it Joe Manda got a love for you. Oh, the first my. two tunes I ever played in the club. A pivotal moment. <laughs> and that was in uh, would have been in 1992 maybe and then what happened next yeah well just collecting records and um then went and lived in japan in 1993 uh 1993 and half of 94 and met a guy who was a a real aficionado 
who I became friends with, um, and he was into Merck recordings and uh, early Strictly Rhythm, and that was really influential on me, really, really influential on me. It was, just, it was the first time I'd met someone who was just an absolute fiend for a certain genre of music, and, you know, just, it was, it was um, you know... You were schooled well. I was schooled well, the, yeah. Those and, labels in those years. Yeah, yeah 1993. <laughs> and, then, um, and, and then I discovered the Tribal Recordings label, which I have had a you know lifelong love for. Um, and I was just buying their records on site just on... Because you could tell their covers from the other side of the store. They all had the same cover. Um, so sidestep for a minute. I've noticed that you travel a lot uh, and Asian countries... Uh, recently, that is. Uh, have you always travelled about, or have you got a love for like Asia? The reason I started travelling initially to Japan, and that was the first time I'd been to a foreign foreign country. Yeah. Um, with a different language. Um, uh, I went there not for DJing reasons. I went there because I got offered a job with a friend to um work for a tennis club and play tennis for them. It's like me when it, when I was. When I was in London, and then all my friends would go on like the Kontiki buses, and I would find somewhere and just repeatedly go back because I'm like, to me, that's traveling. Like, I'm going somewhere and getting amongst, then I meet people, and then you actually get to know the city. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, um, I see you going back, and I'm like, I wonder if he's like me. He like finds somewhere, and he's like, you know, what? I'm gonna get to the nitty gritty of this place. Yeah, um, and I, I really enjoy Southeast Asia, but it's also because it's easy to get to, it's only 12 hours approximately. Um, there are lots of really cool remote beaches and as much as I like partying and, and being around lots of people I also like finding really really remote places and just switching off and I can't do that I can't do that by going to Sydney or Hawaii um, or Berlin and I've been to Berlin many many times I've been to Sydney many times and Melbourne um, but if I want to switch off and completely unwind I'll try and find somewhere remote and whether it's um, Taupo or whether it's Cambodia it's, you know. there's a big difference between yeah. those two Rob I'm going to be honest <laughs> yeah well I, and, and I, I can go to Southeast Asia um, in our late winter and get a, three or four weeks of sun warm weather in ahead of our summer so it sort of um, breaks up the end of winter yeah. so there's no no more motivation other than that I've got lots of friends in Thailand because um, I worked there for a period um so I like going back there and the beaches I go to I want to keep going to them until they've been ruined by overdevelopment so that's yeah, yeah. there's no there's no special motivation otherwise <laughs> okay cool Good so, answer. so so when you came back from Japan were you hell bent that you wanted to share this music that you discovered with a New Zealand audience it, absolutely and as soon as I started going to record shops which was BPM Records which was owned by Simon Grigg who owned the box as well um, some of the tunes that I was into he had them on the wall literally in the shop or in his office at that stage where he was selling records so he would just order the tribal recording stuff I'd just buy them on site but, and, so and, there must have already been a thirst in New Zealand for, for this right there must have yeah, been well, something there probably mostly in Auckland it was um, the box and that was you know the Rob Salmon yeah. era. Um, Simon was bringing records in um, and he was heavily influenced by um, what was happening in New York through Watts Music which is where um, one of a Kiwi guy ran for a long time and, and so what about radio because obviously you, it's got to be 
you've got to have people listening to it to go, oh, I'm going to go to the box because this is what they're playing. So was this on, what was, was this on the radio? Was there house music on the radio? Yeah, was... um, the BPM show was going yeah. from the very early 90s. Was that on BFM? Be- on BFM, yeah. yeah. And that was um, Simon providing the music and Rob Salmon playing them each week. And I would listen to that religiously. It was fantastic. Fun. Yeah. You know, it was good fun. Um, going to the box was great. And then the Normanby Road Parties was sort of more techy, edgy stuff. And then that um, that kind of morphed into the Red Zone opening at Hotel de Bretz. And that had more of a Chicago slant because Andy was really into Chicago. He came from a hip-hop background, Andy Van, I'm talking about. Um, and I went there and was really into sort of Roy Davis Jr. through to Masters at Work. And then even Junior Boys' own recording stuff, which was... You know, Farley and Haller Project, Ashley Beadle, Ballistic Brothers, um, Black Science Orchestra. Um, and then and then within sort of a year or two, then people like Moody Man came along, who were just doing something Oof. completely different. <laughs> and those records, you know, were the hard ones to get. And, and the scarcity of music was a big thing then. A, a record by someone like Moody Man or Danny Tanaglia. I show people Moody Man stuff that who aren't into house music, and then especially hip hop heads, and I'm like, do check this out. And they're just like, what the fuck? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. for people that don't know, he's, he's, he's uh, is he from Detroit? But a yeah. black dude yes. from Detroit. Yeah. And his whole thing was kind of talking to the crowd over house music. It was like a show as well. Yeah. Uh, and really engaging and fucking funny at times. Yes, very, very. And, and, and I, I love that kind of music. And New Zealand had a really weird melting pot um, musically um, in that... People from New York were into New York music mostly. Chicago, Chicago, Miami, Miami, Detroit, Detroit. The English people, they had their own house scene, which was all of the you know Junior Boys' own recordings guys. And um, oh, I can't even think of some of the other promoters, uh, um, producers. And then Europe had to... And Auckland was one of the... Well, New Zealand was one of the weird places where international DJs would come here and say, man, your DJs are weird. You're like playing like a couple of records from Chicago, a couple from San Fran, a couple from London and a couple from, you know, New York. It's kind of this weird blend, and, and often international DJs would come here and leave being really impressed and with what they heard people like Greg or Bevan or Dean or whoever playing, um, and before that, Rob Salmon. And it was, it was quite interesting that they would come and be quite narrow in their style, which was awesome, especially when people like Stacey Pullen or Jeff Mills came um, doing their thing. But they often left being quite impressed with our DJs. That's, yeah, that's really interesting. You you, yeah. you wouldn't have immediately guessed that because we didn't have we didn't have um, our own you know, um, house music scene or techno music scene like not a really well established one. So we were just ordering records from overseas. So um, you'd get some from UK, some from England, and it ended up being all mashed together. I mean, I, I, I'm interested to you were saying about the the record shop where you were getting it from, but. What was it? How did that record shop know that it needed to stock this kind of electronic music pre the box? What was going on that stoked that stoked the demand? Um, I think Simon, Simon, Greg, and other people—they had been running nightclubs since the eighties, right? And they'd always been sort of on the pointy edge of where music was going. Whether I guess the, I guess new wave stuff and then hip house like jungle brothers and stuff yeah um i, yeah. I may be speaking way out of turn here yeah um it's a bit before my time and that was people like roger perry who were playing um who, who, who everyone in the scenes heard of um and peter illich as well 
and uh, Mark Phillips, I think. I think he was the third person. Yeah, the name's so out of his head. The Peter Ehrlich thing, he was in a very famous New Zealand band, a rock band. And then he's kind of become a figurehead of house music. Peter uh, has done fantastic stuff for house by taking the music that he did with um, with Bevan, the Nice and Ehrlich stuff. And before Bevan, it was um, it was um, Phil Clark, Clark, DJ Clarkie. And sort of bridging that gap between underground house music and, you know, commercials stuff and you can't you know there's no way of discounting that he has had a big impact on dragging a lot of people into house music without even realizing they've been yeah. dragged into house music and and broaden that audience big time especially when they went to george fm yeah george george is a george is an interesting one yeah the the radio station that could have been for me, anyway, I just feel like George is, uh, 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 it's commercialism that happens all the time, but it's like they lost their edge and what they're portraying as house, uh, as dance music, it's not actually what's being consumed in the rest of the world. It's like a weird, weird, most popular of the popular, uh, and it's not actually what dance music represents. Yeah. Yeah. But, but if you compared new George FM here with the equivalent, Radio stations in the UK and London and Berlin, they would also be playing that. No, disagree massively, especially places like Melbourne with Kiss FM and stuff. Even Kiss FM in London, you would get radio stations with that, but they have they have shows dedicated to different genres. And oh stuff. yeah, I don't think Kiss FM in Melbourne is, is the equivalent of George. Well, yeah, but what? Well, my my argument is it's. In New Zealand, George is representing dance music. It's yes, it the is. only one. Yes, and it's and not and a true representation. It, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No, no, for fair. And and um, I'm I'm I hand on heart, I don't listen to the radio that often, um, so I couldn't really comment. But the impression I get when I see George promoted gigs that it's very down the kind of the I don't know the, the cookie cutter end of yeah um, dance music. Yeah. And you know, and I hear things where people say they're playing deep house. And, I, and I'm like, I swear this sounds almost like Skrillex to me. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, so, so, so maybe this is an age gap or a, I have a separation that, that I don't pay, deliberately don't pay attention to everything because you can't pay attention to everything. So I just focus on sort of what I'm doing and the people around me and people whose um, events and music I dig. And I'm happy for them to have their own separate parallel market that doesn't impact me or affect me much at all. Um, that said, I do mixes for George FM. Um, oddly, um, I put together a decade of dance mix for them a while ago, which which you picked a decade of music, and that seemed too easy to me. So I said, how about I do a decade of French House from '93 to 2003, and they and they loved it. So I've done a bunch since, and I've got another one coming up too. So um, yeah, yeah, we just find them worlds apart, especially yeah. to deal with like BFM is so fucking supportive. And um, BFM's e- awesome. Even yep. though they're not, they're not like dance orientated. They're fully on board with what we're trying to do, and will help at every turn. Yeah. Whereas George, it's like if you can, if you're not pulling in big dollars, well, you've got not, don't really have. Yeah, time. and 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 maybe B's thing with the similarity with you is is that B still um, is underpinned by the the counterculture anti commercial. Uh, sorry, anti-mainstream kind of ethos, and they've maintained that really well. I just realised I'm actually part of the counterculture after talking to Jamie last night. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, um, yeah, I'm w- part of the fucking yeah. counterculture, <laughs> y'all. Whereas George FM now was the electronic music attempt end of commercial radio, so they're not 
They're, they're actually very different things, even though, as you said, BFM's not strictly an electronic music station. The music you play is definitely down the niche end of sort of counterculture or, or alternative music. And how fundamental was, was radio back in the day to, to the scene that you're talking about with the box, etc.? Early on, I think it was really important because you could tune into, um, tune into Simon's show, um, Beats Per Minute, and you could hear cutting-edge stuff. I mean, and a lot of these are, are, are online. People used to record them and they'd put them on SoundCloud. He was playing, you know, amazing stuff. Woody McBride, Jeff Mills all of uh, French stuff, you know, pre-Daft Punk, um, all of the great New York and uh, Chicago and Miami house music. He's playing all the stuff in the early 90s. Just amazing stuff, you know. And, and to, you know, and, and I, I know people who I, you know, who I met through DJing who would record them every week and put the track list on them and they literally have a case with years and years and years of these tapes on them. And, oh, they, and still, they still cherish them. Yeah, so um, that that was really important. And later on, George FM came along, and George FM was really um, a standout station in that not many countries had a f- sort of a non-commercial station that was electronic music twenty four seven. Yeah, I think this, no, is, like, what, like, like even, this is what this is what I find frustrating. Even New York it was didn't have really that. good. It was yeah. really really yeah. good. Uh, and I've and, done hundreds of shows on yeah. George over the years, hundreds and hundreds of shows, and I, I loved it a lot of the time. Yeah, I think I think anyone that's anyone that's the other thing. It's like anyone that's had a career in with DJing, George has supported in the past, and then uh, I feel like Bass FM is kind of stepping up trying to do that, but they just don't have the they don't have the bandwidth to get the audience. That's the problem. Uh, true. I'm astounded that that there was a 24/7 electronic radio station. Well, sorry, electronic music radio station here at, at that time. That that wasn't in Britain apart no. from pirate radio. Yeah, and that's that's the big difference between New Zealand and Britain. Is, yeah. is pirate radio was a big part of the culture. We didn't really have it here. Yeah, and and I, I remember. But it sounds I, like you didn't need it. I remember when <laughs> Stacey Kidd, who was a Chicago DJ yeah. and producer, I remember he came to New Zealand in about '99, and he, he I mean '99 or 2000, and even he was like, "We don't even have this in Chicago." Yeah, you know, th- they may have had it in the in the early era, and then it just gone. You know, it, it cost too much to run a station. That maybe they didn't have the same model that we did, where you could have um, low broadcast range frequencies for free, oh. like we had in New Zealand. You know, and, and you got that frequency by broadcasting on it continuously. Like if you stopped broadcasting, someone else could take it over. I, th- I think that was sort of how it worked. Ah, that's really interesting. So it's sort yeah, of like the radio so frequency. We equivalent. have the problem that there's not enough frequencies. And so with Base FM, they have a frequency. But if you drive west, someone else has got that frequency. And it's just some dude in the garage playing scratchy jazz. <laughs> And they don't, they can't figure out who it who it is. So that's why when you drive out west, it, you get it kind of. <laughs> but you know that, but but it but it still has the anarchic element of what pirate radio was in the UK. You know, there's the, the, there is there is something special and funny about it, and it fulfilled an amazing purpose for you guys at yeah. the time. And, and and it was and the anarchy of it extended to getting shows as well. Um, because George needed advertising in the early days. If you could um. If you could find an advertiser, they'd pretty much they'd sort of give you a show, and and, and I um because <laughs> my brother was always good at um he, he was involved in various electronic businesses, but he um his boss and I 
went to George and were like, hey, if you sponsor a show, you know, um, you know, that Rob will do it. I, I won't say what brand it is. And I went to George and said, I'm doing your sales rep job. So I want 20% of the money. And they're like, oh, we don't do that. I'm like, but I've done all, all the work for you. I've done all the hard work. Without this contact, you don't get it. And they're like, no, no, we don't do that. And I was like, fair enough. <laughs> was that, che- was che- that was the end of Rob's mafia career. No, I mean, I was, I was, it was all totally above the board. You give me 20%, nothing <laughs> happens here. It was, to- it was um, no, no, but it was uh, it was all above the board. But um, they, they were like, no, no, you know, it requires admin and stuff. And I'm like, what, what admin? You just sign the contract and send them an invoice. Um, <laughs> this, this this sounds awful lot like mafia heavy. Like just sign the contract. You keep your fingers, buddy. Is it, don't they just call it commission? Yeah, like, like, yeah, because well, salesperson's commission. It was a sales commission that a salesperson would get. Because remember, the station was non-commercial, but um, but but they did really well on the smell of an oily rag for a long time, and you know, and, and for whatever it has become now, or what it, you know, however people want to remember it fondly or not um they were awesome for a very very long time and they contributed a lot to um music culture in auckland especially yeah um n- nowadays it's more a straight business venture from from my understanding um, my perception but that's cool i just you know if you start a radio station if you want to do it better yeah but you can't that's the thing there's not yeah. the bandwidth that's the thing i i you can always I, do a podcast I, yeah. yeah yeah fuck we should try that <laughs> yeah um well we've kind of had because i was like that with radio i'm like it's got to be a dying art like this is gonna gonna change like the television television revolution with netflix like people are just gonna start tuning in um, but Drake was saying it's it's still one of the world's biggest mediums because it it's there, it's in every car and people at the end of the day it's going to be used in the background. Yeah, yeah. So, so it, it's it's been surprising, you know, when I went back in the day when, when I did my journalism degree, there were lots of texts predicting not the end, but certainly a decline, and that's not been the case. Like the consumption's gone up, broadly speaking. Um, but yeah, anyway, back, back to back to the clubs and the, and the general scene. When would you say, in your opinion, was the peak? When did you enjoy it the most? Oh, that, that's sort of hard. I mean, I, I, I like to think that I still enjoyed the events that I play at now as much as the ones I did previously. It's just now there's not so much mystique to them because I've done them, probably done 1,500 gigs, you know. Um, but... You know, uh, for me, playing at the Red Zone weekly in 1996 and 97 was amazing. It, it was just one of those things where every week you looked forward to it. It was just such good fun. There'd be tons of people would just be cranking and Andy Van would be running around telling the same stories that he still tells now um, <laughs> about what he used to do back in the day. And <laughs> um, and it was, just, it was just awesome, you know, and we had some legendary DJs come through and DJ there like Phil Asher, Mark Loved Up. You know, people like, you know, just, just ridiculously awesome. Phil Asher, rest in peace. Yeah. Um, um, and then the box was the same, but sort of the box was like the hallowed ground. You know, that Sound Factory reference before, or Ministry of Sound, is that, you know, we used to go to the box and it'd be like, imagine playing here one day on this sound system with that DJ booth. It was insane. And then when I got asked to play and, and I told my best mate, Brendan, he, he was like, I need to come over. We need to like go and get a coffee and this is just like this news is just amazing <laughs> and it was it was it was pretty cool so um that era was amazing but then the the era when we started having big parties monthly was good with the global underground the renaissance events 
And you were involved sounds. in those, right? Yeah, p- playing at them mostly. I wasn't involved in organising them. But um, th- that was a good era when every month there'd be a DJ over here and you'd have a gig with, you know, the small ones would be 1,500 people. The big ones would be three or 4,000. And it was like every month almost. Mm. And then there was a different promoter, Lightspeed, which was um, sort of more the cool end of the spectrum, doing people like um, Stacey Pollan and, and Shay Demir and uh, Carl Craig. I can't remember who else he brought over, and then the paper recordings guys, Miles Holloway, um, you know, and then and then Jim Barron, who became Crazy P. Oh, well, sorry, he's one of the people. Um, and then all of the Renaissance and Ministry of Sound Global Underground gigs were just cranking, yeah. And yeah. then the trance people were doing their own thing with Slinky and God's Kitchen, um, you know. And, and I remember I played at a gig in the side room at Alexandra Raceway, um, up in Green Lane, and that was um, Mara Picotto and a bunch of DJs like that. I was in the side room, and the side room was six, seven hundred people, and I DJed there until the sun came up, and it was shining because we were in a, in, a, in a grandstand of a racetrack, and the sun was kind of coming through. It was just, like, gigs like that just don't happen that much, which is why I love festivals so much. Yeah, you know? we'll, we'll, t- we'll touch more on this because this is kind of our, our thread of, of yeah. what what yeah what happened in the area. Why, why did we seem to go backwards? But just going back to I know why playing. Well, you think you know why, but everyone thinks they know why. So oh, I'm looking is, forward to this. Oh um, yeah, I can get onto that. Um, so, but going back to you playing every week, that's like having a residency. That's that's one of the things that I think is massive missing massively from from New Zealand culture. It's a huge thing. It's a huge honour to have. Uh, It lets DJs create their own sound. It creates scenes because those DJs stretch their legs. Um, And I say to people when they're trying to do, like, trying to get things off the ground or Sundays and and they fail and it's like, it's it's just consistency. If you gave one DJ who knows his onions a residency and gave it three months, you'd have a Sunday party that is working every weekend but it just takes time yeah. um, and, and, the, and proven as, as uh, Frederica and Meraki throwing Sunday parties and just consistently good and now they're huge like, yeah yeah and, and, and the um, the consistency thing's a big thing and, and maybe now people are more in a single serve or impatient mindset that they want things to work quicker and they think they can chuck money at Instagram or Facebook and if it doesn't work first time you're gone yeah. Whereas, whereas building things up over time and taking the time to make them work um, is almost a lost art in some respect, which is which is why when people do achieve it, I you know have heaps of kudos for people who do it. Whether it's a something like the Mikari guy, Mikari, Meraki, whether it's the Meraki guys, or whether it's individual DJs, people like Frank Booker yeah. who have built up their own yeah, career Frank, career just doing something different to yeah. everyone else, or whether it's festivals like um om or shipwreck where they've just plugged away over time just building it up bit by bit by bit um the same kind consistency of consistency and hard work yeah absolutely but, but it's a bit harder I mean, audience has changed you know the, the the way society has evolved it doesn't see i don't think we could ever get back to that time where you've got a weekly resident that's just trusted to be a resident that would pull big crowds it's not the it's not but but mike the thing is here like big you're big and our big uh world's apart because this is new zealand for something to be successful here you only need 100 people and, get, and it, let's say let's say you start let's say you start 
a Sunday like Secret Sundays did in London. It was exactly the same. So it, it peaked at like 800 people or whatever on Sunday. We only need 100 people every Sunday, which means a pool of 800 regulars. But what? So what happens is if you go in one week and you're like, you have the best time and then you tell your friend and you go, come back the next week and they're playing drum and bass, you're never going to go again. Sundays are done. But if you go every, it doesn't have to be the same DJs on the Sunday, but you kind of got to have a consistent kind of sound and you'll be like, oh my God, I never knew the Sunday was happening. Yeah. Tell your friends, bring more, it carries on. Because it is working. It's, it is. Yeah. So when you're saying, uh, it, we're, we're past the time where this doesn't work, there are people doing it and it is working. Yeah, and and there is also the element of um, the consistency that used to be the strength of residency gigs in you know in New Zealand at least in the nineties and maybe early two thousands um, relied on the mystique and lack of access to that music. Mm. Now there's a lot more ability to access that music, you know, through compilations, through Spotify, through lots of gigs, through um, streaming, SoundCloud, you know, MixCloud, whatever. Um, and maybe people can get their musical fix that way without having to step out of the house. Maybe they're still enjoying the music. They're just not doing it um, in a social setting. It's a factor. But I also think that just in general, people become less loyal to movements or as time goes on um uh, no i disagree it's one of those mike how people, how long have you been listening to house and Tech? well yeah but people younger than us right because because at the time when we're talk, when we were talking about the, the glory days of the of the box etc most of the people involved in it would have been you know teens 20s 30s we're now older than that, right? And we're yeah, we're still loyal, but we're from a different generation. Yeah, but you, you we're talking about we're talking about we're talking about. I think you're talking about what happened back in the day. I'm talking about now. How do you get something that works and pulls a dollar, and it's just consistency? And so, if you throw, let's my point, if you throw a resident who's good at a bar that isn't pulling numbers and put quality music, it'll it'll slowly because consistency over time. It's just, it's it's quality music and that creates a scene and people come but it's a diminishing return in in that regard i think that the young, the younger audience is more likely to consume electronic music a bit more like it's a gig a bit so a bigger scale yeah, but, gig where, but again, where someone's like people, very famous people, rather than just hanging out the, somewhere local the people that are that are going to Ponsonby uh, and downtown, uh, they're not kids. They're right. late twenties. That the consumer market, and and also there's been a big thing. There's a, what what happens is once you hit thirty or thirty two, you don't want to go to Ink Bar or whatever anymore. But there was but there was nothing there. There was nothing like that's again as we've gone over this. One of the reasons we started Lo-Fi was like people wanted more than a sound system and a bottle of water. They wanted like. A scenery, nice decor, shade, um, quality sound system, and that's missing. And then when you give people things that, it creates a scene. We've created lo-fi from something that wasn't there. We're not the only ones, obviously. There are other outfits that have done similar things, and and people after us that have picked up the ball and seen what we do and ran with it, and are now some of them probably doing it better than we are. So, yeah, when you like, it's a diminishing return. I don't think I don't think any music scene is a unless unless it's a Unless it's a scene like breaks or dubstep where it's like uh, a hedonistic return, you can only really go out to party to that music 
then th- that's never going to last. Breaks fell on its ass because it didn't didn't evolve. Uh, but any music that's evolving and keeping up with the times, it's a music scene. That's, it's going to be a hunger for it. You've just got to find what those buttons are to push in the right way to get people... But you don't do it weekly, do you? No, but there is weekly... There's house and techno weekly everywhere in the in the city. The problems we have... The problem we're having is it hits oversaturation, which is so when you're like, it's not weekly. Every weekend there's house and techno gigs on. The problem is when you have two medium-sized gigs with the semi the same crowd, it damages each other. We're back to that point. Uh, COVID times that wasn't happening. People have been locked down. They were hungry to party. It was like you could throw any gig and and it wouldn't matter. And there are factors that play into this, like the access uh, availability of venues and then how much uh, expendable income people have, which at this stage of sort of what's looking like a recession, it's going down, down, down for the people in the 20 to 40-year-old age group. When the recession gets bad, a lot of those people, their disposable income starts going up again because they um, are unable to have mortgages, so they don't have mortgage repayments. So they end up having more of their pay packet left to do things, and people start giving up on future plans Life. they start giving up so much on long term future plans so they treat the weekends as the cut loose time rather mm. than rather than I'm going to stay home this weekend and save a bit of money it's like effort let's go out and party and yeah. you know the, the big scenes that have happened in the world through you know London and New York and Chicago have come off the back of the second half of really bad economic times yeah, yeah. yeah. and New Zealand doesn't have nearly the social turmoil of those situations but you know, we could start seeing people going, you know, being more interested in going out to weekly gigs and things. I mean, it's very expensive to go out here. Yeah. It, it is. Drinks but, are expensive. But also back you know? to the diminishing returns thing. Yeah. Uh, Ink Bar proves that all it is is consistency. Yes. Yeah. It's just, it's always been the backbone of our, like it or not, it's been the backbone of our scene. They play House and Techno every week. Every week they pretty much pack out. They have the odd night where it's a bit rough when there's bigger things on, but. Uh, just consistently every week that's people know it's there they know that okay there's nothing else on we know we can go hear quality music at yeah and you and you want your consistent night to be the kind of place where if people are out and they go oh let's extend our night we'll just pop by yeah you can't do that when a venue is and you're unsure of what's going to be there or whether you're unsure whether you're going to show up and there's going to be a $50 door door charge instead of a $10 door charge um and and that that's the strength of the resident, the re- mm. regular resident thing you're talking about, and, and and I like that. I mean, it's sort of a bit of both. But a lot of people have grown up, younger people have grown up on just going to one-off gigs once a month and cutting loose, and maybe they spend a lot more money on, on, goodies. Yeah. To go to those gigs, um, and then they maybe they can't afford to go out the rest of the time. I think that's a big factor. Yeah, it, it must be. Yeah, and when we see that around Christmas too, around the New Year's Eve gigs and the summer festival season, um, that it's it's a fairly decent amount of money to go to these events as a as a punter. Once you include tents, travel, food, everything. It's, yeah, you know, we've we've talked about this. Um, it. Is, it is, yeah, it's getting it's getting fucking. It's getting expensive, expensive, but but I, I still think the festivals that I've been to this year, I, I think it would be fantastic value. Um, maybe I'm a bit blind to it because I'm not buying tickets because <laughs> I'm, I'm DJing at them, but um, I, I would have thought to go away for three nights to an event that was sort of, or two nights at a gig that was, you know, 250 to $400 all up 
maybe maybe 600 once you include travel everything yeah, around so food and stuff so it's, some it's, of it's, the comments from our crowd is uh with some of the festivals is uh it's fucking expensive and we can get to see you guys cheaper all the time so yeah. we're not going to pay that much money to come see you guys and that's a fair comment and and and, and, and that's why festivals need to be an experience that is totally different to mm, weekly clubbing yeah. they need to be f- immersive just fully wrap around like experiences where it's like a, a fantasy wonderland yeah. and some festivals do an amazing job of that some really uh you know just tick in boxes yep yeah um, i mean the, the ones i've been to here i've been impressed with the artistic value um, yeah. i i felt that it, it it was value for money i paid for some of them to get in some of them i didn't but but either way I, I thought the standard of entertainment was really, really good. Um, and it did make sense to me to watch these DJs play who I might be able to watch in Auckland for cheaper. It, it felt reasonable because it looked good and it felt good. Yeah, but, but you've only been here for two months. You haven't been here for five years seeing me and Drake play every weekend. and then Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it, even I, I. I love my friends, and I love this music, and I love this scene, and all my friends are talented. You, you guys know how I feel like this. You need external influence to keep a scene healthy, and there's not enough of it. No, nowhere near anywhere enough of it. Yeah. So, so, so are there fewer international acts, uh, credible electronic music acts coming here now than back in the day? Is that fair? Probably, yeah. In, in, in fact, almost certainly. Um, but there are a lot of internationals who come here, who come through that sort of that George realm, George FM realm, who I often see ads for, and I'm like, wow, right. they're coming yeah. here, and I would have never thought yeah. to, I would have never bought a ticket to go to them when I see the price as well. Um, but um, there are, but I think in our realm, the yeah. sort of the the last quarter of underground electronic house techno crossover, um, there are certainly fewer than there was in the peak years. And the peak years might have been. 98 to 2005 type thing but yeah, so, but, so but, but, but these also it's this is not um a scene being lazy this is a scene also maturing with its own talent getting better and better and better and offering and of the international djs on offer the average quality declining greatly the great guys are still great but there are a lot of really crap djs who cost tons of money and a lot of very average DJs that cost tons of money and the prices have just got just ludicrous when I hear some of these prices yeah I find this kind of chilled out a bit more and I actually see it a little because bit because this different. is because this is because a lot of DJs who rinsed it for ages yeah. stopped getting bookings yeah and, and when you see the prices that I've heard of you know people like Sasha you know you couldn't get him for under 30 grand for about 10 years yeah now he's 10, n- 10, n- now now he's 10 so, you know and yeah. these people had to be more realistic these yeah. these people were making you know um Fifty, sixty thousand dollars a week for half the year, for seven in the peak of their career. Yeah, but the argument for that is like, and, and, and they were well, why you fucking can because the, yes. you have a finite career, yeah. um, and if you can get that money, take that money. Yeah, fuck you, can't, you, you But o- often, fuck. often the artists weren't getting it. In New Zealand, our, our case was usually whatever the artist was getting, the Australian agents were doubling it. Yeah. And so New Zealanders were just getting rinsed yeah, by still, Australian still, agents, and, and, and New Zealanders just needed to, to 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 put the foot down. And a few promoters did. Um, I know that Andy did it with um, Derek Carter. He said, "I'll only bring you to New Zealand if I can deal direct." And the price went from twenty to ten straight yeah. away. 
Um, yeah, we're still dealing with it. Um, but the comment of like the DJ's quality getting worse, I've actually found it's the other way. I used to get so pissed off in like the 2000s when I'd pay 15 pounds or whatever to go see a DJ and then they were producers, they weren't DJs. And it was so frustrating. So that the yeah. DJ skills would be fucking terrible. I'd be like, dude, I could have stayed at home and DJ better myself. Like, yeah. um, and it depends why you want to, I mean, some people want to go and see a DJ to hear them do their stuff rather than um, be an, a, a wowing DJ. And we all know some of the, the great names in electronic music like Carl Craig and Kevin Saunderson were, were never um, known as being great DJs. And in fact, probably didn't DJ for a long time. Mm. Um, and yet now they tour constantly as DJs because yeah. it's the best route to, to guaranteed income. Absolutely. So you um, mentioned 98 to 05, this sort of time period. So what happened next? Why do you think there was a decline after then? Um, it, it wasn't so much the decline in big gigs. It was that New Zealand, Auckland in particular, I think got infected with what I call the Sydney disease. And Sydney went from being a pretty cool club, that, uh, pretty cool clubbing city that had lots of really cool underground um, events and they had an amazing forward-thinking music, um, gay music scene. Um, and then flipped to just to just being cheese, and it was just you know cheese driven music like Madison Avenue and you know Kylie remixes and um, that whole New York you know um, Razor and Guido and Thunderpuss kind of style thing and Cher remixes and um, and then K Road in Auckland quickly went down that route and there was a period from in the in the mid two thousands where people like Greg and myself and Bevan, or maybe not so much Bevan, Greg, Greg and myself and Dean Webb and Andy Van, you know, there was hardly anything. It was very, very thin on the ground because people just, the, the venue owners and promoters just wanted total cheese. Yeah, and, so and it was really weird and it really gutted the, um, it really gutted the um, enthusiasm and, um, that, that, and, and momentum of, of the really good underground scene, you know, as the the whole global underground thing was good. and global underground um fell for it too you know felt on certain fall for it um succumbed to it yeah that that's so that was the, the when those were the years like 2002 2003 where i'd be dragged out and i was a fucking bogan and it was i was like i don't get this house music it's yeah fucking and, and 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 this is because you know um uh music on radios was getting bigger and bigger and bigger and so you know the electronic music so you know it's becoming more and more commercial and george fm was probably leaning you know the shows that were popular on George like Drive and Breakfast were probably playing a lot more commercial stuff then. I, I'm just guessing, but then there were more options too. There was Audio Galaxy and Kazar, and then online radio was coming along, and then compilation CDs was um, like mixed compilations were becoming bigger and bigger and bigger. Like George, um, the um, you know all of the Ministry of Sound annuals and things. Yeah, would become, and, and everyone who people who never went clubbing, you'd go to their house and they'd have like Ministry of Sound dance anthems and stuff, and it would just be like a mega mixes of all the biggest, most overt kind of cheesified house, and 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 that probably had a big impact on steering um, what people wanted to hear. But shouldn't that go the other way? Because it's like okay, now now you're pushing out to the masses, you're getting more people in clubland. Yeah, well, so, so you, you you're having you've got a bigger funnel of people entering the scene. So in theory, more of those people will will eventually get more discerning in their tastes, 
and will filter through to the the niche underground things, and that has happened to an extent. But like we're seeing people now who, um, you know, we're seeing, you know, hundreds and hundreds of sort of very underground house DJs just in Auckland alone, whereas 20 years ago there was 10. Yeah, but I, the, I, the main angle, the main question is, it wasn't it wasn't just the quality of sound. It's it was. Um, so when I left for, when I left for London, we had free festivals in parks every weekend. There was New Zealand on air. New Zealand music was thriving. Uh, seemed like the council weren't so harsh. Um, the, we know that the drinking laws changed. Um, P came into the scene. Uh, I I think a factor in it of the whole whole scene kind of died. Not not dying. It should be said that it's more that it, it's it wasn't uh, financially viable anymore. It exploded um, so quickly yeah. in, the, in those mid two thousands. Like the K Road clubbing scene, for example. There's like fifteen clubs that were all cranking for a couple of years. Yeah, that's my point. Like, um, so they exploded so quickly. Rent started going up. Um, Police and um, licensing started saying we're seeing too many breaches of liquor laws. It started um, treating things more seriously, and rightly so often. So was that liquor and not drugs? Uh, no, no, and then um, gang involvement and, oh, and security, okay. and then even ownership of some bars, and then that started having a, a negative impact with the way bars work with each other, and then alcohol companies started pulling back on what they would be willing to sponsor. I mean, they used to throw big money at events, and then, and then over over a two or three year period, as bars started falling over that that they had debentures with that they'd lent money to, they just said we're just going to be a lot more sales focused with it. If you sell this many drinks at your event, we'll give you this much. And they just made them reliant on, you know, it made them reliant on uh, sales rather than just being on the fly. And we used to go to we used to go to people I when I wasn't promoting events when I stopped promoting events I would still help people get sponsorship and I, I would honestly go to DB or you know or Line and say hey we're doing this event we'll put a couple of banners up we'll put you on the flyer and stuff and you'll be the only beer in the bar and they'll be like oh yeah we'll give you five grand and, and like that's, that's unheard of now yeah you know? I, I've dealt with and I'm the worst it's like try to get sponsors in there and it's like, oh, we'll put your name on the flyer, we'll put you on the advertising and all that, and they're like, yeah, thanks, here's um, two boxes. I'm like, fuck, yeah. no, <laughs> fuck, really? Yeah, exactly, yeah. And, um, and yeah, they really, um, but, yeah, the, so a lot of money went out of it, Yeah. and then also a lot more scrutiny came on things like license infractions, um, rents were going up, and then, as you said before, there was a, a quick increase in the use of antisocial drugs, Rather than um, social recreational drugs, um, and and I only say this as an as I said as sort of an outside observer. I had some friends who took um, e- ecstasy and you know weekly for years, and then yeah, I could see a few of them sort of started losing their mind, and you know just people who you wouldn't even expect lawyers suddenly hooked on meth, and you're like, wow. Crazy. Yeah, I don't think I don't. Th- <laughs> it can be argued. I don't think those two drugs go hand in hand no no no. what i'm saying is that the first one's probably not going to develop into a problem yeah the the last the second one oh, always will there, there's no yeah. there's, you know and, and yeah. it had big negative effects and um previously um security and nightclubs around auckland and maybe the rest of new zealand too a lot of it was um run by people with gang affiliations and i think that um that got stomped on pretty heavily um at, at some point in time 
I mean, it, but apart, but crystal meth aside, the what you have cited here, relatively common growing pains of club cultures in, say, London, Manchester, New York, but they t- they came back from this from. from why has it not yeah, come I, back? Well, I mean, a bit, a bit rents, the cost to do things is three or four times what it was, you know, relatively three or four times what it was 20, 20 years ago. Um, and to say somewhere like New York has not bounced back from its heyday, from, you know, through the mid-90s when they had Sound Factory and, you know, Tunnel, Limelight, um, and then um, and then later on they had um, Arc Space and Shelter. Like, New York has never bounced back from what it was. It was the, the centre of the universe as far as electronic music more house music went for for a long time in terms of clubs that were sort of a thousand plus yeah yeah yeah, yeah. It, london london also actually there, there are yeah. fewer mid there are fewer mid-sized clubs but there's there's still quite a lot of small venues yeah it's still that, the industry that, that's, that are doing that's, that's well. what fascinates me new york it's also like, it's like anywhere where where it was popular and thriving it just evolved it might have got more on the ground, but it, it just got stronger in different different ways. Where yeah. like I, it, it was, yeah, it's like in it's, it was like it got stabbed in the throat in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Like for example, the the get the gig you were showing me with uh, with fifteen massive internationals. Like we're, we're no way even near that. Even with even with a different genre, we couldn't throw a, a gig like that with that many international DJs. Yeah. Now it's just and, not and, and that was also the the venues as well. I mean. The, 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 that was called Two Tribes, and I think that was 2002, that one, um, which, you know, it had a big amount of DJs, you know. Um, it, um, should we name some of them? Yeah, go Yeah, I mean, that was, um, one room was Renaissance, and that was um, Danny Howells, Steve Lawler, and Seb Fontaine, I think. Oh, and Seb, yeah. But, but Seb Fontaine ended up being switched to another room. The main room, which was the town hall, was um, Tiesto and John Double O Fleming, but because... Tiesto did a no-show. They switched one of the DJs. There was another room with Pete Haller and a bunch of sort of Chicago-y type local DJs. Then there was um, a drum and bass room, which I think it was Trace. I'm not sure. Trace, um, someone else. And then um, Storm from Chemistry and Storm. Right. Um, and then there was um, Lee Coombs and Jeff Mills. So we're talking like the biggest guys in their genres in each of these genres and this was the town hall both rooms the civic winter garden and two other rooms at the civic and they were all full until daylight so um, what so what was the catalyst for you to become such uh, a lobbying voice on behalf of this scene what broke the camel's back yeah this is um 2012 13 when the sale and supply of alcohol act um came into force which amended the previous sale of liquor act um it changed licensing hours this the, the default licensing hours from 24 hours to 4 a.m and it allowed councils the option to enact a local alcohol policy which would make variations on that and the assumption was that in small towns rural towns the default hours would be too permissive and so they would bring these into like 1 a.m or maybe 2 a.m and that in big cities, 4am would be too restrictive and that they would be able to go to 6am and, 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 and provide justification for it. The alcohol, um, the health lobby and the police um, and a few community residents organisations and, and the council as well had other ideas and they thought 4am was too permissive even in Auckland 
and that they would go even earlier. So I had just read about it and I chatted to some of my DJ friends and thought maybe we should do a submission to the council while they're doing their public consultation, thinking that it would be a letter. And um, I did that and then I spoke to someone from the Hospitality Association called Nadine who explained a lot of how things were going to work and how and, and their position on it because they represented all sorts of bars and um, as it turned out it ended up being a many many year journey of involvement and a lot of it was absolutely um, fascinating to get involved in policy um, advocacy and I sort of kept getting involved in it because I quickly realised that when I tried to rally especially younger um, DJs around on the importance of going into bat for things you you know passionate about that even if you were passionate about it if you didn't have sort of a certain level of confidence or business experience or or just life experience um that um getting involved in consultations was impossible you know you mm. couldn't do it meaningfully you know you, th- you could write a letter you could whinge and say i want to party and stuff but the, they could easily just turn around and go oh cool thanks for coming and then just ignore you and i was I'm the kind of person who um, would would be like, no, nah, I think I know more about this than you, and I'd make sure I did. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and spend a lot of time reading and um, um, speaking to people, and then went and got some legal advice, um, you know, just and then set up a, a small group with um, Tom McGuinness, and Tom McGuinness um, is from Friendly Potential. They're doing the Beacon Festival. T- Tom was really helpful because he knew lots of sort of people at the younger end of the spectrum. And we, re- we had a couple of meetings where we got, I don't know, 75 to 100 people to talk about people's positions on how we could approach the council and um, sort of defend club land. Um, and I, pr- pretty quickly I realised that defending it from the point of view of venues would always get you um, labelled that you were doing it for commercial interests. So I was very careful all along that I would always argue our points in the policy um, in our advocacy um, from the point of view of people who want to go out partying and who enjoy music and enjoy music culture and that the vast majority of them are not out getting caned, drinking hard until 4 or 5 a.m. Um, and you know, from that, why should they be the people who lose out? Whereas pubs, which you know, sell most of their alcohol between 9 and 12, would be untouched by these laws. And that just seemed unjust to me. So I sort of made it my mission to get involved and stay involved. And um, it was a, you know, it was a long saga. And initially it was the council who had differing views to us. And just through some, you know, fluky events, um, some of the people at the council were actually quite receptive to someone showing up in a record label T-shirt and cool trainers rather than a suit. And, you know, having coffee with them and, and chatting to them and explaining to them it wasn't about heavy drinking. It was about people who wanted to enjoy music with like-minded others. And we um, we sort of got the council on, on side, and so they they sort of picked the least worst policy option, which was to retain 4am rather than going earlier. And so then the police clearly were the people who were like, now we're cheesed off about it. So at least I had the council on side by that stage. Do, do you think anyone actually realises that it's like, if you don't give a city uh, a relief valve, your issues get worse? It, you have to have 
um, a hedonistic subculture because if it's not there, it spills over into everyday life. Yep, absolutely. And um, and I made a big effort. You, I'm looking into alcohol harm stats or the stats that could easily be crime stats um, that could easily be attributed to alcohol. And thankfully, our crime coding. Uh, designates when things uh, have got alcohol involved and as it turns out the vast majority and we're talking in the 90% of alcohol related incidents in New Zealand happened at domestic locations not outside bars or in the city Um, and you know when you start looking further it's it's it was then about 76% of alcohol was sold in off licenses so supermarkets and off and bottle shops now it's closer to 80 because um, supermarket alcohol is so 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 cheap, um, you know, and comparing supermarket alcohol to bar alcohol, the ratio, at New Zealand's got one of the biggest gaps in the world. Um, it's crazy, like way bigger than Australia. The gap's huge. So, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, but j- just on the harm thing, where you're talking about the hedonism, that I, I absolutely agree that um, when they um, started bringing their crime stats out talking about you know the cycle of the week and how many alcohol related incidents they attended to i was like yeah well of course friday and saturday are the big ones and then sunday's the big one for a and e and saturday morning big one for a and e i said now split it into hour and we'll start looking at it and when we started looking at it by the hour you'd start seeing that that the alcohol that was being sold you know, the vast majority of it sold before midnight, between about 9 and 12, and then the amount of alcohol sold between 3 and 6 was like a 20th of the alcohol sold in one hour before midnight. And you're like, so shutting bars at 3 o'clock instead of 4 o'clock is going to improve things how? You know, it seems like the the main driver was, from the police's point of view, if we come up with a really simple solution to quite a complex problem people will think all that sounds sensible but simple solutions to complex problems are always always wrong how much of that was being pushed by the public like we want we want we want some fucking answers from the police to fix these problems Uh, the thing is the problems were trending down quite drastically over like a 10 year period so the 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 issue that com- that made it worse was police resourcing was declining too compared to population and especially compared to the growing population in the CBD so the problems were actually trending down especially on a per capita basis but the amount of police resources was going down too and this might be a bit dry for a, <laughs> a um, podcast like this but um, it sort of seemed like in lieu of not being able to get more funding or having the resourcing they wanted it was easier for police and for council initially to say why don't we remove the alcohol and close bars earlier and it'll solve the problem and and i have always thought if there's an issue that and any any issue that involves say crime and police if the issue is normal people doing things responsibly for the most part if the issue is police resourcing then the argument should be more police resourcing not everyone else has to change what they're doing in order to um fit in with places lack of resourcing and and this got worse and worse and worse under the previous government the national government um the way they deployed people and the way they did their rosters and the way they um let let more people join the police 
even um, that they got rid of the um, age and physical size requirements which meant that instead of there being you know multiple teams of multiple pairs of six foot three guys who you wouldn't mess with walking the street there would be people who were five foot six with someone big and it, it reduced it, it lowered the um the sort of the warning factor and, and the visual um deterrent um so and and th- then we saw assaults against police start increasing too and and all of these things to turn any of these things around and say therefore we need to close those two bars on k road an hour earlier just I'm like I don't even see this this link here. Right. So, but after so they so they closed started closing everything closed at four. Um, what was the fallout from that? Because I imagine it would have actually just made the problem worse. People spilling out in in mass at four a.m. Drunk, Larry. Um, d- displacement is the big thing, um, and displacement was you know it, even though more places were closing at the same time the police sort of argued that the worst drinkers would have been forced to stop earlier which again I'm like well if the worst drinkers would have been forced to stop earlier then the late closing hour wasn't the problem because it's against the law to serve people who are drunk already therefore it's a compliance issue for a start secondly um, as the gap between what you paid for alcohol in bars and supermarkets kept widening more people were drinking at home earlier so there are more issues at home or in car parks, which was, you know, side-loading, where people would go to bars and they'd go back to their car and nick a few drinks and go back into the bar. Um, you know, stuff like that is not the bar's fault. It's the disparity in alcohol prices and, um, you know, and then there's a percentage of people who are irresponsible drinkers and there always will be and you don't fix that by closing a bar an hour there, especially when it's, and I shouldn't say bar, I should say like a music-focused venue. I was all for... Um, pubs having to shut at one or two and nightclubs being allowed to stay open later and I had the delineation that music focused venues were not the same as um, a drinking focused venue and this the hospitality association strongly disagreed with me on this but we we disagreed in a friendly way Um, but it turns out that um, it would require a change of the law to actually have different tiers of license Um, and you know, I even went as far as seeing whether nightclubs could get added to entertainment licenses, which is what strip clubs have got, um, where they could stay open later. And so can strip clubs stay open later than 4am? Yes, they can, but they can't sell alcohol after 4am. Hmm. So, so they are trusted to stop selling alcohol at 4. So what the existing ones do do is they sell non-alcoholic spirits. They're the same price, but they sell spirits that have got no alcohol on them. And um, whereas nightclubs, the police basically said, we don't trust that you'll comply. And we're like, but you already trust other people to comply. Um, and th- these are pure pure music focus. So, so, so the dry, the old dry conversation. The lower stripper in yeah. the <laughs> So you can, see, you, can, you can see that there's uh, many tiers of um, detail on this, which um, I, I haven't talked about for quite a while. Yeah. I don't know why it's all coming out. Um, but, um, but this is only a small part of sort of where I've got to with um, advocacy stuff. And so with this, do, do these laws ever get looked at again? Yes. Do, yeah. And, and how hard would it be to change those laws? Well, if you had a sympathetic government and a minister, 
it might not be that hard, but I the chance the of that. But you think so? Gonna... You think central government might be a, a better angle than fighting at a more local level? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yes. Yes, for two reasons. Um, yes and no. But uh, central government, it's likely that um, alcohol laws, the because it's 2012, the last law was signed and it came into effect in December 2013. So we're at 10 years now. It's likely that the next government um, would probably revisit it. And there is a very good chance that they would um, look at closing times again um, with an eye to making them even earlier, which is not what people want to hear. But um, I'm now versed enough that I'm, in, on one hand, I'm, I would go and do it all again. The other hand, I would say, right, if we need other people to step up and be involved in helping this because it took a lot out of me over a long period of time, yeah. um, effort and, and financially, to, to do it. Now, um, there is an argument that earlier closing creates a better music scene. And a prime example of this is Raglan, where they only have three hours, but their locals support that three hours every week. It's like they have three hours to listen to quality music and they make the effort and pay to go out in those three hours. Yeah, the Raglan also probably only has 250 people who go out to any of the Raglan bars each week as well. But that's sustainable for a city that size, right? So, yeah. so that... So, I, I, I can see that argument and, and the police leveled arguments when I discussed with them about closing times so I'd say you know some of the police say I've been to Los Angeles and it's got a great music scene and they close at one and I'm like if you think LA's got a great electronic music scene that's why you, you became a police officer that you obviously don't <laughs> yeah. know anything secondly um, um, LA, San Fran and other cities along the um, western side of the states um, lots of them are famous for having um, non-alcoholic you know non, no alcohol available parties till dawn that people will rock to after these bars shut. If you're talking about reducing harm and people going home, then that's not a very good example at all because they're just going somewhere else and either drinking drinking illegally or taking drugs, both of which you are not into anyway. So, you, you know, you can't really use them as an argument. Yeah. And this is actually, this um, specific example is actually in my, um, my evidence for the court case that I was involved in. Um, I wrote up... Um, a piece of rebuttal evidence because the um, medical officer of health and alcohol health watch um, had both talked about vibrant light nightlife in, in a couple of cities and they named the cities so I went and found out what I could from those cities from people who live there and drafted this into a thing and got it submitted into the evidence but basically blah 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 this is why they're talking shit <laughs> you know <clears throat> so on that note with with talking about similar cities so we're supposed to be part of UNESCO right um, can you explain what new, you, UNESCO is supposed to mean and you mean the creative be? cities initiative yeah and, what, the, and the cities we're twinned with oh the Auckland cities of music um, um, so the creative cities there, there's a, a, a series of different types of them there's literature ones art and music I think I think those are the three there may be others Auckland's um I think it's accredited. I think that's what you call it. I'm not sure. Is the Auckland um, is the um, the music one, and it's called a city of music. And it just is a reflection that the city at a at a government level, like Auckland Council, local government, um, have um, um, committed to initiatives and efforts to promote grassroots music culture and to support them and to provide opportunities for them. Um, you know, wherever reasonable. Um, to help grow the scene, to help make that city um, attractive 
to people who may be thinking of moving there, especially you know younger people who want to embark on you know music related careers. And um, I, I think um, p- pandemic aside, because they started it, then the pandemic came, so they're only you know they've been hamstrung a bit. But um, I, I, it's been quite a noble um, initiative, and I, I support it totally. I, I've been I was on one of their steering committees. Um, for one aspect of it early on, which was about measuring nightlife. I, I haven't seen that much compelling data about the value of Auckland nightlife. I've tried to find it. Uh, um, no, no um, um, uh, one of the large accounting companies was commissioned a few years ago to do an assessment of the, ec- it was more the economic value yeah. of nightlife. Um, and and it's, a pre- it's a pretty good document. I can easily send it to you. Um, yeah, you I'd can be find, interested. But, um, but those documents need to be updated fairly often, like every five years. So that because it's always about comparing it to how it used to be. It's you know a point in time is yeah. not much use. It's the trend that you want to look at. Yeah. Um, so we, we, you've talked a lot about the uh, the police angle of this opening <coughs> opening times, closing times, potential public order issues. What are the other things that you find yourself? arguing with the authorities about on behalf of the club scene there's nothing I, I haven't really argued about them with anything um the only things that i've really got involved with in a sort of argumentative sense are um demanding to know why or not demanding i'm um, requesting to know why some events have been given council funding um and, and, and i have a you know sort of a belief that purely commercial events that may have music involved um, should not have access to any arts funding. Yeah, that, that's some of my. It's that is frustrating for us as well. We, yeah. as lo-fi, we 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 beg for help off the council, and it's like it's not possible. But then outfits of similar size do get help. And it's yeah. Like, well, what's yeah. The- I mean, and 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 I wasn't thinking more from comparing, say, a lo-fi type event. Yeah, or, you t- 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 it was just that when when a large international company tours artists. And they get, you know, they're going to bring so many people to this venue, and the venue's going <clears> to <throat> sell this many drinks and this much food. They're effectively getting the venue at a massively discounted rate when they should be the people paying full rate. Whereas if you want to go and rent the same venue, it's um, basically at a rate that makes doing an event there unviable, non viable. And, and you'll know this from. Oh, this is anything to do with council. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And, and council venues, even, even at the community level, at the community level, Council-run venues um, are, are often far too expensive, out of whack with reality. Um, if you want to, say, run a small music class with, say, 10 people, um, if you're charging those people to use a venue, every single venue, no matter how small, starts at about $100 an hour, plus just, when it should be 50 an hour. And, and that's because it's the easy way for them just to run them all and have a minimum Yeah, but at charge. our level, it's like, it's like twenty grand. a minimum of 10, 10 grand. Yeah, like. yeah. And, and we used to do gigs at the Civic Winter Garden, and I, we could use our own security, um, um, have, you know, they would do the bar, but we could tell them what to put in the bar so that we could satisfy sponsors. And um, we'd have our own security, our own coat check, all that kind of stuff. And the venues were four or five grand. Yeah, you know, and, and, and that, but now it's twenty, and you're like, uh, "Yep." I want to dig into the the larger scale events here. So we're talking Live Nation, some an entity like that yep. that sells in very commercial big events, and you're saying that 
that they are benefiting from public money, basically? Um, not, not always, but sometimes when people do big events, and a lot of the big events which you know, happen annually, or a one-off concert, say, you know, in a Dell or Ed Sheeran, and I'm not sure, those might not be the right examples, but that's that, that kind of size event. Th- those are probably not the right examples, but uh, events of that ilk where large organisations have pitched what they do from a sort of a, a cultural perspective, a music cultural perspective, or when really it's straight business. And they may be able to yeah. make an economic argument that, um, that they're employing people and that they're helping vibrancy in the city but it's not art Mm. it's not art and even if it was um i don't care for a start (laughs) but but they um but it seems like it's easier for um one large event to apply and get funding or get support and that support may come in just ease of compliance or um using their own security company their own ticketing company or um or getting a venue cheaper which makes it easier for them to do events than a local promoter who wants to do something of, say, 1,000, 2,000 people, which is that Goldilocks zone where we we don't really have um, commercially viable venues. They're too, the venues are too expensive. Yeah. Um, and um, I, I just through stuff that had happened with the council before, through ATED, which is now no longer, um, event after event that I saw had support from the council and a few times I happened to know people involved in them and I asked about the support they got and it seemed like the council was like oh this is going to be a big gig um, you know, we'll give them some money or make this thing cheaper when they should be saving all of those benefits for small grassroots things yeah so how do we change this it's a bit of a big question, but you must have had some ideas. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Auckland City of Music, I think, is one of the good routes for this. Um, and, and I think that's one of their... Well, they may not have said it that way, but I think that's one of their um, missions is to make it so that... Or try and help make it so that there are more viable venues um, in that sort of golden range of capacity so that you can do the, the middle range events. I'm sorry, middle size events. Um, viably because they're too hard to do currently. Yeah, much too hard to do. So Auckland City of Music, tell us more. What? Uh, honestly, you need to probably speak to Mark Roach or someone about it. But um, they're, they're um, you know Mark Roach from Recorded Music. No, he's sort of the the main go to guy for Auckland City of Music. Um, but but you know they have great aspirations to promote and support grassroots music culture, and that includes um, practice venues. Um, you know, places where people can go and learn, um, places where people can record, do small gigs, medium gigs, you know, medium to large gigs, you know, so, so that it's sort of helping promote um, creative career paths. And um, they, um, you know, when they fully get going in the next couple of years, I think they'll be a really good, um, a really good thing as to whether it will help a lo-fi event type I've got a whole new career in the spoken spoken word world, which I'm looking for a new small venue. This sounds right up my alley. Yeah, so I'm I'm not really sure. um, I'm not really sure how, say, a dance party promoter is going to benefit from it Mm. um, straight away. But um, in a general sense, the grassroots side should improve. Um, Mm. I hope that um, a whole bunch of commercial properties around Auckland city fringes become vacant in the next couple of years. 
with tenants leaving and then you know rents getting more realistic and then band spaces and recording studios being a more viable thing uh, that's pretty hopeful but um I yeah it, does it is happen. pretty hopeful the, uh, the thing with the the thing with like because we're looking for warehouse spaces. the thing with warehouse spaces and there's plenty of empty warehouses but if they drop rent it's better to have an empty warehouse yeah. at a rent with rent that a sky rocket than drop the rent down because it affects the value of the warehouse so there's yeah. plenty of empty spaces yeah uh, rent's just ridiculous hmm yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, I, I was hoping by now, actually, post-COVID, because obviously retail in, in cities around the world would have taken a battering. Um, I was hoping by now I'd be seeing a more pop-up sort of rave and, and club culture. Not really seeing it yet. Um, anyway, maybe I'm not looking hard enough. I mean, one wonders if, in Auckland's case... They even even if they did drop the rent, would these things get licenses? By what we've been saying at the moment, they probably wouldn't. Uh, it, no, it's it, it's not that hard to get a license, but all the boxes have to be ticked. So the problem, the, so the problem we had with licenses, where we tried to push into warehouse spaces, with the home of the rave, um, is that it, it the the lines between the liquor license and the um, capacity uh, and fire. That bleed into each other and what what the fire says capacity uh, and what reality what you can fit in there are far in between unless you put sprinkler systems and uh, opening doors that open outwards uh, alarms like and then it just becomes too expensive then you're then you're building a club it's not a it's not a, a an unused space that we've just decided to use yeah. so that's where that it's not that ba- bad to get a and there are companies out there that have helped us and they're like look just do this and this and we can we'll push you over the line to help you get this liquor license it's not the liquor side of things the liquor side of things are pretty good it's it's all the red tape around the rest of it yeah and there's a tricky scenario also is that when you want to do a a warehouse party for five to eight hundred five to a thousand people maybe um that when you need a fire assessment when you need a liquor licensing consultant every time you speak to one of these people it's a thousand dollars Effectively, to to get the fire thing, it's a grand. To get the liquor license help, it's a grand. You know, to get someone to commit to doing a bar, it's a grand. So it's like that. Just the cost, just you know. Whereas fifteen years ago, it was four hundred dollars, three hundred dollars. You know, it's, it just seems so expensive to do all these things that you think would just be sort of pretty straightforward. You know, not box ticking, but um, fairly easy things to get done. Yeah, and m- maybe that's because these people are so busy they don't have the time, um, or they don't need your business. I, I don't know, but um, I think it it may also be a, a public sector mentality that that they're used to certain systems and processes that are more commensurate with the live nations of this world. But Owen, you, whoever comes to them with an event it's a variable they're like ah they're looking for reasons why not yeah and think well why should i bother for only 300 people yeah we, we just find with with like live nation for example it's not like they're doing anything wrong they're just like we we're used to commercial parties um and we can make m- money off them and and it's hard to make money off you guys uh, but the but the, the argument for that is if well if you made it easier for us we would do way more parties with you we would do regular things with you yeah. so you would eventually make more money instead of banking on banking on 12 events a year you would get you'd get 30 events a year so 
Yeah, that's one of those things. It's like banging your head up against a brick wall sometimes. What What would your advice be to Lo-Fi specifically to get these events over the line that they haven't been able to with the council? The council seems to be receptive to ideas, and I'm often baffled by the ideas that do pass muster. Um, and then not at all surprised by good ideas that get ignored or, or, or shot down. So... Um, sometimes it's just having an in an agent for change inside an agent for an agent um, inside um, someone who has an interest or an empathy. Um, we found that with the local alcohol policy stuff that um, we ended up with someone in the council who happens to love techno, um, and she was the chief policy writer. She's a techno DJ in Berlin now. <laughs> you know, so it's Brilliant. like so. So th- this is the how close we were. Um, with someone who had an empathy and an interest and that must help lean things in your favour um, and maybe there are some people within the council who um, who, you know, and it could just be someone who gets promoted or someone new in there who um, is like, hey, I'm going to you know, put more effort into these kind of things you know, I love Splore and saw how it went um, why can't we have 17 smaller things like that during the year and, and you just need one person like that or to find the one person who's receptive to to speaking to um, but you have to go and speak to them you know you can't just email the general email and um, and hope to get a positive response every time you know you need to do a bit of digging and find a person who has a background in a certain area or shown some you know previous history of interest in it and track them down and the, the problem with that though is not everyone's like me and, it, and the roadblock happens right there where it's like oh you've got a you You've got to track down who it is, and most yeah. people don't have those skills. No, no, they I, don't. I struggle absolutely. with those. Skills. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And so, I mean, man, I, I mean, I've had many conversations with the council where I said, "Can I speak to the person who?" And they're like, "Oh, you know, I pass it on to the team." I'm like, "Do they have a name?" And they're like, "Yeah, oh, yeah, they do." I'm like, "What's their name?" And they're like, "Oh, we can't give you that." I'm like, well, "I was like, this is not how you should be yeah. operating. You're not supposed to be a roadblock. I'm trying to help them make their job easier, make them look better to their boss." And to ratepayers or taxpayers, um, it's an you know, and eventually I'd track people down, um, you know, I mean, and even in the stuff I did during the pandemic, I tracked down people at Ministry for Culture and Heritage um, through the LinkedIn pages, looked at how long they'd been in New Zealand because people from overseas, so that I could find people who had less New Zealand history, therefore would have less likelihood of um sort of poo-pooing ideas that may maybe be more open to some certain ideas um and you know that i i found that i was like oh this is me being crafty and sneaky but it was actually you know sitting at home during the pandemic going actually we need to be more creative how we do this i'll just commit to contacting five people each day until i get someone who's receptive and you get the right person and it's bang you're away Mm. um yeah yeah get someone on the phone and um, and, 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 and this comes back to what you're saying before about getting, you know, how to get involved in these things. It, it does require a bit of effort, a bit of ability, well not ability, willingness to um, suffer some losses to try and find the wins um, and to get good at diplomacy um, and then to also be a good advocate for your cause as well. You know, a good wholesome advocate, you know, a non-drug taking, you know, <laughs> single yeah. middle-aged guy. Yeah. I don't know, whatever, you know, uh, you know. Um, not yeah, on air, mate, no, because, not on air. Yeah, because you want to, you want to, um, <laughs> you want to, um, uh, 
sort of show them the good side of music culture and not um, just immediately tick the boxes of the of the memes. Mm, yeah. um, we may have got to the nub of it here that maybe Owen, you're not a good wholesome advocate. No, he is. Oh, he is. Okay. Thank you, Robert. Right then. Thank you, so, Robert. And go. Yeah. <laughs> no, he is. It's just other than, other than the, um, the 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 barbed wire tattoo on the forearm. Is it that's, that's my heart on my sleeve. Oh, it's your heart on your sleeve. <laughs> See what he's done there. Yeah. <laughs> I have a a, a a heartbeat on my on my sleeve, which is how I used to score chicks. What's that? It's the heart of my sleeve. Bah. Wow, that's quite good. Did you come up with that, or did the? Or was that? Did, that was it me? That wasn't like on page one of the no, tattoo book. No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. Right. Anyway, oh, shall cool. we? Show us that. That's, I, uh, I think that's a wrap. We'll, we'll finish but up we, with some lightheartedness. Uh, oh, will we? Uh, oh, we, we covered we? everything we're going to cover. Yeah, pretty, oh. pretty much. That's oh. pretty good. I thought we were uh, going to talk about the pandemic stuff. Anyway, no, no. let's stay away. I'm, let's, let's no, 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 the Ministry for Culture and Heritage stuff. Yeah. But you know, but but uh, you've you've grown your hair, out, Rob. Uh, I'd say recently, but but it takes a while to grow it. It out. does. Have you had to change your shampoo game up, or is it same? Same as it always was. No, I took some good advice from my hairdresser. She said, um, with hair like mine, don't shampoo it, just condition it. And that improved it a lot straight away. Full stop. Boom. <laughs> that's that's what I was looking and, for. And I wasn't, I wasn't, I, I just like, I'm going to ask an expert and take their advice and take it on, you know, take it on faith. Let's get the hairdresser in for a podcast. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Rob. So that was Mr. Rob Warner. Um, loved it factual and also interesting about the history yeah wealth of wealth of knowledge absolutely yeah i'm glad i don't walk around with all that in my head (laughs) one thing i really loved was that he was talking about the bpm show on on bfm with um with simon was it simon grigg and and rob salmon and this is the first time i've heard anyone talk about radio being really important in auckland Um, yeah it is really important in in auckland um, but the problem is co- commercialism of local of our local radio stations is is pretty horrendous. Uh, I think BFM are the only only ones that are still flying the flag for quality music. Indeed, um, the other thing I really liked was when he was talking about Auckland back in the day. They get international DJs over that couldn't believe how good it was because. There were local Auckland DJs playing a little bit of San Francisco, a little bit of New York, a little bit of Europe, a little bit of Chicago. Um, that's really cool. That, I, there, that there was a time when when it, it did have a bit of an identity. As yeah, but I, I would I would argue that international DJs still think they're coming over. They, uh, our, our local DJs are a pretty fucking talented bunch, and. Uh, We've only got positive reports when de- when DJs have come over and played for us, uh, and I, they when playing at other festivals they seem to keep coming back. So uh, I think the I think the qualities I think the qualities always been there. I don't think that's any issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I concur. Just my my summer here, um, the standard of DJ has been really really good. Um, I've, yeah, can't fault it. It's what it's the standards I expect elsewhere. Um, so all good on that front. Now the more dry but important stuff. And he was apologising for it, but this is what I wanted to know. You know, um, I thought it was quite interesting what he was saying about licensing and how he's deconstructed the myth 
of somewhere being open until four rather than two and that somehow being a public order problem. Just to recap, he said 90% of alcohol-related incidents occur in domestic environments. He said the amount of alcohol between three and six that is sold is a 20th of what is sold before 12. And then the killer. Let's talk about this. Strip clubs are allowed to stay open after 4 a.m., but on the basis that they won't sell alcohol, and they are trusted to do that. And yet, and yet, underground club promoters are not trusted to do that. Owen, Mr. Lo-Fi, how does that make you feel? Uh, it's uh, the, the, In all honesty, the four, the open from four till six or, or rolling through, uh, because of how I party and and my age and whatever doesn't bother me massively but i do know it does have an effect on our music scene the thing with the alcohol consumption you ask any any adult that's been to a festival or or club knows that there's no trouble with our music scene because because it's not alcohol fueled uh it would be it's more and i'm not slagging off the rugby scene or the sports scene but that everyone knows that those events kick off trouble because they're fueled by alcohol yeah and they are, they're on at 3 p.m or whatever yeah. <laughs> yeah so i mean i think it is fair to say that you do feel a bit marginalized and, and victimized as an underground club promoter um so if it's not the four till six thing you know what? What are the things but that it's bother not, you? Yeah, it's not just underground. That's overground, side ground, everyone ground. It's affecting overground, yeah. bombing free. What a tune! Yeah, yeah. Um, what a beast! We should remix that. Uh, but, yeah, it's an everyone problem. Um, you've heard me say it over and over. If you treat people like kids, they'll act like kids. Treat people like adults, they'll step up and act like adults. There's always going to be fucking idiots, no matter what you do. But. Uh, if we look to our big brothers overseas, they uh, European cities, they have a very mature angle on drinking and maturity comes out of it. Yeah, although something that is a constant theme, and I remember there were lots of conversations about this uh, in London about 10 years ago, was that policing cuts made... It basically, you know, they needed more police on duty the later things are open. And so underground house music, underground techno, club culture uh, was bore the brunt of that. Like, oh, no, we can't stay open that late. We need more police. It's a pu- And suddenly we became a public order problem. And, and so lot, lot, quite a few cities are having, are having those conversations. Um, with you, when you're putting events on or trying to put events on, trying to get licenses, trying to do things in unusual spaces, what are the barriers that are presented? Biggest cost, always. always. As in the hire of the venue? Or? Uh, it's just it, the difference between... Now, this is what we try. have always tried to do because we're trying to push out of clubland like all mature music scenes do. Um but just the cost added to it compared to doing it in a club is is 
phenomenal. People don't realize we you have to you have to rent the space. Everything's got to be paid for. Security, portaloos, um, sound system, lighting, like everything has a cost, and it goes onto the ticket. And it and it again, it comes down to the, the general public want to pay more for a ticket. Uh, and what about making the, the building safe? Like, what do you need to do for the council uh, well, to it say? Well, it, de- it depends because there's there's non-venues and there's semi-venues. We have some venues and we have some places in Auckland that are um, fit to be a venue, and uh, it's it's not as much work. But there's still no sound system. There's still no security. Uh, However, if we're going into somewhere that's not used as a venue, it's near impossible uh, without a large cost involvement, especially if you're doing it um, regularly, like a warehouse, for example. You've got to invest. It, it has to be a regular thing because you've got to get that money out of the space. It's impossible unless it's illegal, uh, which is the backbone of a lot of scenes when they start but it's you, you yeah, can't you, you can't you can only do that for so long it's you can't really book an international dj and nah. be like hey can you play my illegal rave yeah. yeah it's not 1988 um but how do you make these places safe then right what sort of stuff do you have to invest for warehouses it's mostly around fire so capacity without um fire systems yeah uh, sprinklers alarms and doors that open outwards uh for a warehouse that would hold like 400 people the without those in place the capacity is like 60 people and so without those things in place you can't get a liquor license it's it's impossible um and so the the problems we've had in the past is when we've tried to get a liquor license uh you then get flagged by the council so then you couldn't even throw it as illegal even if you wanted to because you're on the radar and you're going to get checked Mm. on Mm. so speaking of the council let let's i want to talk about council-run venues that are apparently geared up for doing events. Yes. But you haven't had much luck doing events uh, in no, these we, venues. We, we, we've done them. We've done them, but the cost and the work that is involved with them is, is, is disheartening. Now, we've had some amazing people in the council that have helped us, but one of the things you have to remember is that they're doing that as a full-time job, and and we're doing it as a part-time passion and the amount of admin between the two is is ridiculous um that's one of the issues um second issue is it's a it's a size thing we we like if you're doing 500 to a thousand people you're you're considered small and so a lot of the time the the auckland council is they just why would they do 500 person parties when they can do 5,000 person parties less times of the year and earn more money so that's mm-hmm. another another issue and that's understandable the argument for that is um, you don't get those big scenes without the little scenes um, our little scenes not so little when, when it's all put together and something something comes across like a festival with a few internationals or, or a heritage act comes across then we're not so little some of all parts then it's then it's thousands and thousands of people so mm. um, it, yeah I, I, from the council's point of view it's just it's just a I guess it's just a numbers thing. So you think uh, so? You th- so they're charging too much for these spaces, and and they're also not giving you the time of day as much as they should. Um, it's uh, they charge a. Uh, it, 
they charge a lot for spaces. Um, we have to have insurance in place, which is expensive. Our argument for that is, well, doesn't the venue have insurance? Like w- when we go to play in a club, it's the club's insur- insurance. That cost for, because uh, you have to get a year's insurance. If you're only doing one or two of those gigs a year, the cost of that insurance is is a massive part of the profit. Uh, then dealing with council, it's not a, so a venue, general venue is um, you get the, you get the door, they take the bar. Uh, with most venues, we know if it's, if they haven't made the money on the bar, they might say, we're going to take $5 a ticket. Doesn't happen with council. Um, we have, we, we so have. So there's a, there's a lack of flexibility in, in the business model. Yes. Yeah. Now we have had, uh, a council venue that was very helpful and we did have that arrangement but um it was uh it was just hard to promote it was very hard to promote and some of that's our fault and some of it's their fault i mean i i think there's a a great opportunity now given that there's been such a big story about uh cuts in arts funding um maybe they could go on a charm offensive and be a bit more flexible with their model and think let people empower people to pick up the slack that maybe they can no longer fund yeah now let's be clear as well this is a very personal point of view because it's just us dealing with the council maybe if we do 10 council gigs we'll get a rapport with the council and things will become a lot easier and we're not slagging the council off here this isn't a the council don't help that there are avenues to get funding from the council um but for put it this way i've been doing this five years and i find it fucking difficult very fucking difficult so someone coming in who's who's uh, what i think would happen would come in fresh legs all passionate energy for days first brick wall is dealing with the council won't ever do it again Mm, yeah yeah it's a shame but um I do have some hope, you know, just just from reading up on all of this, speaking to people. I think there may be a will for it to change. Hey, this isn't all doom and gloom. You've got yeah. to take your head off to the people in the in our music scene that have uh, that have seen these problems and beat these problems. Well, like and, Rob Warner. Yeah, yeah, and <laughs> and uh, gone. Okay, well, maybe the council's not for us. We're going to go another way. We are going to we're going to make an illegal space legal. We're going to yeah. open clubs like. Like this, this shouldn't come across as all doom and gloom because there are people out there flying the flag and doing a fucking amazing job. Uh, when when uh, when Auckland's on fire, you've seen it. It is on fire. We have one of the best <laughs> music scenes uh, in the world, uh, but it, it just shouldn't be this fucking hard, man. It mm. just shouldn't. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, I, I, yeah, I can't argue with any of that. Um, and it might sound a bit high and mighty, but. We do hope that conversations like this can get people thinking more. We hope we hope that we're not just moaning. Yeah, if this is a full stop under our uh, podcast, I wish we could do more, but you do have to go home to your real life. Yes, uh, yes. Is that, Back to sunny Ibiza. Um, these sort of conversations are important. Um, like the social media thing of... There's no conversational nuance around things and people get upset because they post their opinion um, and then it's just people arguing on online. You re- you can't change anyone's mind 
just arguing and sniping online you got to talk to people and man my my mind can always be changed about stuff i change my mind constantly on stuff uh but i also like talking about the stuff the, this is this is the this is what i talk about it afters and befores and at clubs and uh this is yeah. my passion and and a big part of my life so uh, yeah i hope more people i hope people listen to this and i hope people uh talk about this sort of thing because this is this is how we sc- spread the gospel people and we will be back 